Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. If you're a regular listener of the show, you know that normally, as I introduce the week's guest, I try to paint a small word picture, set the scene, give a little context for the case under examination, put a few props on stage, as the dramatists say. But friends, I know when I'm outmatched, and today is one of those days. The story you're about to hear feels pulled straight out of an Agatha Christie novel, a murder mystery set in a historic hotel that feels ripped from the celluloid of Alfred Hitchcock. The genre of hotel murders is a classic. Think Wildfire at Midnight by Mary Stewart, or A Key to the Sweet by John MacDonald, or of course, none other than The Shining by Stephen King. Our guest today is Anne Chesky-Smith, author of Murder at Asheville's Battery Park Hotel, The Search for Helen Clevenger's Killer, published by the History Press. We're delighted to have her as part of our continuing series on prominent women in true crime history. And as you join us, don't forget your detective's cap. You're going to need it. And thank you so much for joining us on Crime Capsule. It is such a pleasure to have you. Absolutely. I'm happy to be here. You have been working on this case, this story, for a decade. How did you first come to the tale of Ellen Clevenger? Well, when I first discovered the case and the story of, of Helen's murder, I was working, I just started as either assistant director or director at the Swannanoa Valley Museum in Black Mountain, North Carolina. And Black Mountain is a small town, um, about 20 minutes outside of Asheville, North Carolina, in the mountains. And one of our most well-known folks um, is Sheriff Lawrence Brown, who was sheriff for 30-plus years in Buncombe County, um, which is the county that Asheville's in, and Black Mountain. And I was, and this is a common problem in small museums, but we have boxes of materials um, that had not been processed. And, and you know, this is, this is not a, a new issue for small museums. We have lots of stuff and not enough staff time or money. But I was processing this box, and I don't know when it had come into the museum. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I pulled out the stack of papers. And, you know, at first glance, I figured out you know, these were from Sheriff's Brown, Sheriff Brown's career as before he was sheriff, while he was sheriff. And I started going through them. And in this pile of papers, most of them related to this one murder, and it was Helen's murder. But the thing that stuck out to me the most was a carbon copy of a confession, um, someone confessing to, to Helen's murder. And I had never heard the story before, so that, of course, piqued my interest. Um, and then I went digging through old newspapers to, to try to find the story. And when, when I found it, um, I actually went to our local library because, again, this was 10 years ago. This was before newspapers.com was really a thing. So I was you know, combing through lots of microfiche from the time, um, very small, very grainy. And there was a story, and it was covered everywhere. It was so sensationalized. It was huge news in Asheville, but also around the country. Um, and the story kind of came out from there and it just, it was so compelling that, um, you know, I went back to the museum and realized what a treasure trove of archival materials this was because, you know, it was 1936 case. Um, the sheriff's department, the Asheville police department who both worked on this case didn't have records of the case anymore. So having, whatever Sheriff Brown saved from that case, which was a major defining moment in his career, um, you know, was, was a huge find. And it, it was how I got started with, with researching the whole story. So. so let me get this straight. You've never heard of this case before that moment in which you pull the alleged murderer's possibly coerced confession straight out of the archival file and it's staring you in the face and you have you just have this moment. Uh, that's extraordinary. Yeah, it was, I mean, looking back at the time, I, I didn't really know what I had. Um, and I will say, um, 
there are multiple confessions, uh, and, and we can get into that later. So this was actually a later confession uh, that had been sent to Sheriff Brown for, for his records. Um, and so that was, that was pretty interesting. That is, that's like being thrown into the deep end without any warning whatsoever, isn't it? That's, that's really amazing. Absolutely. So let's dive right in to that deep end. Go ahead and introduce us to Helen Clevenger. She has this kind of interesting backstory and how she came to arrive in uh, North Carolina has a couple of sort of twists and turns uh, there. So br- help us to help us to understand how she ended up at the Battery Park Hotel at such a young age and uh, in 1936. Sure. So, you know, Helen was not a local girl. I think, you know, we know most about her as being in Asheville, um, but she was from Staten Island. She was a very smart valedictorian of her high school in Staten Island, went to NYU. She was 19 when she made it to North Carolina, but she had completed her freshman year at NYU, had some gotten some merit scholarships. She was a writer. She wrote for the, their student newspaper at her high school. She wrote poetry, um, just a really bright. Um, and, you know, as it comes about pretty, you know, unassuming white teenage girl at the time. And, you know, this is 1936. Um, you know, segregation in the South is, is rampant. Um, we're right in the middle of Jim Crow. But her father works um, pretty high up in the Food and Drug Administration, and he's got a couple brothers in North Carolina. And, you know, Helen's, Helen's just completed her first year. She's never been to the South. So uh, her, her father concocts this plan with her uncles down, who are both teachers at what at the time is North Carolina State College, it's now NC State University, and um, to go down and visit them, stay some, stay some time with them in Raleigh, but also travel with her, one of her uncles, who's a dairy extension specialist. He teaches at the college during the school year, but then during the summers, he travels around the state and advises local dairies. So, um, you know, Helen's along on the ride for this, this to meet people, try a lot of cheese and ice cream, which sounds amazing. Um, and just generally like learn about North Carolina's <laughs> Yeah, so she starts in Raleigh, she hangs out there for a while, they do the eastern part of the state, and then they head uh, to do the western part of the state, and that's how she ends up in western North Carolina in July 1936, Um, really just traveling with her um, bachelor uncle, which does come into play. He's a a single 50-something-year-old man traveling with a 19-year-old woman, and, and that does come into play some later on they're kind of a, an odd pairing uh, in the 1930s that he's he's the chaperone it is interesting because you have you have such an array of sources at your disposal to tell this story and one of the most moving sources that you have is Helen's own diary and reading her entries is you really get a sense of just how lively she was, how curious she was, how open to new experiences uh, she was, how much she enjoyed meeting these people and traveling around on the farms and sort of learning the the different traditional handcrafts and and food ways and so forth. It really is a pleasure to just kind of pal along with her as she's making these entries and and seeing what... I'm going to go out on a limb here, but what must have really been kind of like a foreign country for her being a city girl, right? Yeah. I mean, she definitely grew up in the city, had studied in the city. And, you know, I wish I had more of her letters and her diary entries, what I have. And we've even tried to track down the diary. There's um, a guy who's working on this kind of similarly, but from um, he's part of the Baha'i community, which Helen was as well. And had tried to track down if her diary had ended up in their archives and we haven't been able to track it down. But because the newspaper coverage of this was so intense, whatever the reporters could get their hands on. So they published verbatim entries from her diary, um, postcards that she'd written to her parents about the trip, um, you know, I assume with their permission. But again, it's hard. It's hard specifically to know. But her parents were, you know, were so distraught. They were sharing a lot of things with with the press, also in hopes of, you know, getting her 
having some rep- representation for her because you know everyone was very consumed uh, with the death with her death um but it it was harder to to find out who she was in life um and even you know i i contacted the Tottenville Historical Society which is where Helen was from in Staten Island and they they had never heard of her um but were able to pull some yearbooks for me so and of course of course now they know but um that was that was pretty interesting too that like she doesn't have the same infamy essentially in in Staten Island even though she spent her life in New York City that she does here in Asheville and her story is told over and over here, um, especially on on ghost tours and things like that. So tell us, she and her uncle make it to the Battery Park Hotel, and they actually make it there twice. They sort of land there, and then they take another little jaunt, and then they come back, and that's when uh, things things begin to unfold. But uh, tell us just about the hotel itself. It, it felt like, as I, as I read your book, you know, I couldn't help but think of kind of those great hotels in film or a literature, you know, like the Shining Hotel. Right? It's sort of these from this era of, you know, build big and build grand and kind of let let this place be the destination. Right. And uh, it's very dramatic that you're sort of account of the construction of it and the, the local reaction to it and the ill will in some ways. I mean, it's fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. So the Battery Park, you know, it's still standing in Asheville. It's very prominent on the skyline. There are now a few other tall buildings, but at the time it was the skyscraper and it replaced a earlier Battery Park Hotel, which, you know, Asheville was a huge tourist destination forever. And then the railroad came uh, in the late 1870s, early 1880s, and things just exploded. And um, because of our climate here, we're also we're really well known as a treatment uh, location for tuberculosis. So a lot of these hotels, you know, were were built with this in mind. And then of course, other ones were were saying, well, actually, we're we're not allowing TB patients here. This is just a tourist destination. There's no sick here, but. They, they were springing up all over the place. So Battery Park was a resort hotel. Um, but then in the 1920s, things start changing. The cities start starting to um, be designed more around automobile traffic. And E.W. Grove, who's, who's actually really well known in Asheville, simply because he built the Grove Park Inn, which is probably our premier uh, hotel still on um, it. And, you know, if, if you know a few things about Asheville, you know about the Biltmore House and maybe you know about the, the Grove Park Inn. And so, um, you know, he built, he built the Grove Park Inn, but he also built the Battery Park Hotel and he bought the old Battery Park, said he was gonna, you know, keep it, run it like it was, and then he tore it down. <laughs> he decided it was outdated, you know, it was this kind of long, sprawling resort hotel. He tore it down. Not only did he tear it down, but he leveled the mountain that it was on, because um, we're thinking about automobile traffic here. So we want flat, <laughs> we want walkable areas. And so he levels the hill and he builds this kind of skyscraper battery park hotel you know, and, and people are also probably fairly familiar with the, the writer Thomas Wolfe. He's another one of our, you know, Asheville sons. Um, his, where he grew up is a historic site here in Asheville, pretty close to the Battery Park. And in, in his novel, um, Look Homeward Angel, he, which is a thinly fictionalized version of, of what's going on in Asheville at the time that he's writing, he just writes with derision about this hotel that's popping up. And then, of course, years later, he he and everyone else are guests there, so they they eventually do come around. Um, but it's it's a pretty it's a very impressive building, but it's also surrounded by a number of other impressive hotels, um, and it's really it is a, a tourist center in Asheville. It's lavish. I mean, they spared no expense on the interior, did they? No, it's it was beautiful inside um, from the pictures. You know, uh, it it fell into disrepair in, in the seventies. Um, and now has been renovated and put on the historic register and is uh, apartment for sen- apartment complex for senior citizens. Um, and, but it's still lovely, um, and all the renovations have been done. But at the time, yeah, it was a, it was a grand hotel. Um, is certainly where you know where if you weren't staying at Grove Park, 
this is and you want to stay in downtown Asheville. So Grove Park's a little bit far, farther removed from the from the city. This this was one of the big ones that you stayed at. This was the place to be. So the reason that I want to spend a moment on it is because like any good Alfred Hitchcock or Agatha Christie t- narrative, the layout of the hotel, the design of the hotel, the, the premises of the hotel are actually central to our understanding of the murder that took place there. They, they cannot be separated in every single element from the floor layout to the, to the balustrades, to the windows, to the height of the ceilings, to the... Uh, to the next floor and so forth, it all matters. The door locks, they matter. Every single bit of of the design of this hotel plays into this case. And uh, for our listeners out there who are trying to sort of construct a picture in their minds, um, there are some images that are available out there to look at online if they want to take a look. You also have in your book a a really good depiction from the trial of the floor plan, uh, which was extremely helpful for me <laughs> as I was going through to sort of get a sense. For me of, too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, I was sort of grateful that one of the attorneys had managed to, uh, to sort of construct that and then show it at trial. But it is it is very much a sort of labyrinthine and yet modern structure, and both of those aspects come into play. So take us to the night of July 16th, 1936. They, Helen and her uncle, who's, she calls Uncle Billy, William Clevenger, they've been out at, out in farther western North Carolina, visiting dairies. They've, they've already been at the Battery Park once before, left and come back. And this is their second night of their second trip uh, to the Battery Park, which, which does come into play a bit because, you know, Perhaps they've been seen around Asheville previously. So they're coming back. It's pretty late at night. They've been out in Fairview. So people are familiar with Asheville. Fairview's not, not far. It's more or less a suburb of Asheville at this point. Um, not, not a terribly far drive. But it's dark when they get back. It's stormy when, when they get back. And this, you know, kind of adds to the... Um, to the picture of the, you know, the whole story that it's a dark and stormy night. Absolutely. Those are the Uh, best kind. Yeah. Lightning and thunder rolling over the mountains. And, you know, they pull back up to the hotel, come in the lobby. Um, and pretty much, you know, it's, it's past 10 o'clock at that point. They've had a pretty full day. So they head up in the elevator and these are, you know, 1936 elevators, there are bellhops that take you up and down the elevator. So someone takes them up to the second floor. And Helen's just, from what her uncle says, you know, she's so happy. She says, you know, so many nice people. Thank you. Know, thank you for bringing me. I'm having such a great time. And then says goodnight. Um, and, and her room is to the right off the elevator and around the corner. And then William's room is, is to the left and down the hall. So, you know, she goes around the corner and, and they go into to their rooms. And um, that's the last time that, that William sees her. So she goes into her room, you know, the, the hotel itself, the floor plan is, is kind of L-shaped. And the, the rooms are very small, very modest. Um, there's a single bed, uh, a dresser, a wardrobe, a desk, a chair, and then a very small bathroom. And so she goes about, you know, you know what we know from the investigation of what they found in the room. So we, we have an idea of what she might have done once uh, she got back in the room, which is, you know, she washed out her undergarments. She changed into her pajamas. She wrote a postcard to her mother about her day. Um, she had some magazines in there. So she, she, you know, she probably relaxed and, and read some magazines and likely um, even by 1am was, was not asleep that the, that her light was still on at that time. And so at 1am something happens. Um, Someone either the door is unlocked and someone comes in or someone unlocks the door and then it happens. You know um, what we know, you know, what we know from, the police reports uh, and the newspaper coverage is that she was shot in the chest, um, that she was beaten in the face, and um, that she fought back. And then 
you know, it's, it's really murky as to what really happens in that room. And we can go into that a little bit more, but there's a lot then that happens outside the room. <laughs> that moment is actually pure vintage Hitchcock, isn't it? Because what you have is a large sound like a gunshot. You have screams, you have thuds, you have an assailant kind of running off into the night who is dimly glimpsed by some of the other guests of the hotel. She's in room 224, which is at the end of the hall. There's only a few people around her who can kind of get a look at what is going on. She's not in a major sort of throughway where it's a very public area. All the rooms around her are hearing things but not seeing them, right? And by the time she is discovered, the culprit is long gone and she has no chance. I mean, her wounds were were so deep. Um, it, it's really the kind of thing that you would have expected in, in sort of a 1940s murder mystery. <laughs> uh, I, I couldn't help but yeah, think over absolutely. and over again, you know, of sort of the great cinematography of that, of that period. Well, and, and yes, everyone's hearing things. It's all, you know, as they say, kind of muffled by the thunder and lightning and storm. And, you know, there's not air conditioning <laughs> at this time. So everybody, it's summer, it's July, everybody's sleeping with their windows open. So in some ways, like they should be able to hear better because the windows are open, but in other ways, they're also getting this sound of the storm outside that's kind of like a white noise machine drowning everything out. But still, um, people all around Helen's room, above, below, on either side, across the hallway, they all remember hearing these various sounds, a scream, a woman um, calling for uh, her mother or saying a man's voice saying, it's okay, Polly or Molly. Um, The sounds of glass breaking. So they all talk about these things that they heard, but only one of those people who heard these things happen in the hotel that night actually calls down to the front desk to report a disturbance and ask, you know, what's going on? Um, and, and they do end up sending the night watchman up to listen. But by the time he gets to that floor, everything's quiet. Um, so he does not enter her room. He just listens at the door and, and, uh, doesn't hear anything. So returns back to the lobby. It makes you wonder what would have happened if he had just, knocked on the door, cracked it open to see, you know, asked if she was, if everything was okay, you know, how the story would have turned out differently. I I do hesitate to mention this, but I think it is important. Your account of the actual struggle is, um, it is traumatic and the position of her body against the assailant, there was a point at which she was sort of down on her knees. It appeared as though she was almost begging for her life and, and her murderer, seemed to be completely heartless. I mean, just absolutely merciless in, in his response. Yeah. The, you know, kind of what they put together and, and, you know, I've, I've read many different accounts of this and, but my interpretation is, yeah, she, she may have been on her knees that the shot may have caused her just to fall to her knees. Um, and then she was screaming and that's where either the gun jammed, or he was just simply trying to get her to stop screaming. And that's where he started beating her into in the face. Um, yeah. And it's very traumatic, um, traumatic injuries, traumatic to even to think about. Um, and she ends up, you know, falling back onto her back with her knees folded under her and she's right in the doorway. It's, um, the doorway and it turns right into, a bathroom and then it opens up into the rest of the room. So she's right in this very narrow hallway. Um, even to the point when they do discover her, the door, um, hits against her, against her knees, uh, can't open fully. So, um, she's, she's there. She's trying to get help. Which sort of suggests that she had gone to the door to answer it and then mm-hmm. was still in in the process of admitting this person to the room or even just sort of cracking it open to see who they were and what they wanted, she never got back into the interior of the room at all that we know of. I mean, she might have, but it seems very unusual for that to have happened given given the layout. 
Yeah. I mean, it seems to me too. I mean, if someone was coming into the room and she had been on the bed, like if they had opened it and it was unlocked, you know, she, she might've backed into a corner rather than, you know, come forward. But, you know, she also, you know, seems like a very brave person. You know, we know she has some defensive wounds. So we know she was fighting back. So maybe there was, you know, you know, some, physical action that, that brought her to the door, uh, to, to push someone out or ask them to leave or, or try to escape herself. And it, it's hard to know. Um, but it's, you know, it's, there's a, there's a realm of possibilities there, but I like to, I like to think that, that she was a fighter. Several hours do pass and she, unfortunately, um, you know, she dies without receiving any aid whatsoever. No one knows that she um, is in there or has been, you know, attacked in this way. And there's a little bit of a commotion the next morning as uh, her uncle is sort of getting himself up for breakfast and wondering, um, you know, where's where's my niece? <laughs> uh, it's time time to go downstairs and, you know, uh, start the day. Um, give us a sense of kind of what what happened uh, in after the night had passed. Sure. So you know, William wakes up. He's a little annoyed because he'd he'd asked the hotel to give him a call to wake him up. So he oversleeps, but he still gets out the door, and he's supposed to meet Helen downstairs in the dining room for breakfast, um, like they normally do. But he thinks, well, they didn't call me to wake me up, so maybe they didn't call Helen. I'll just run by her room and knock on the door and make sure she's awake. So he goes, he knocks, he calls for her, and, and there's no answer. And from his telling of it, he, he goes and he kind of pushes the door and it opens. It, and it opens and it, and it hits against something. And so he, you know, calling out, he... He's, he's really getting worried, very anxious at this point. And he, he, you know, he goes in, looks around the door and there she is. And he, um, he comes out screaming, you know, oh my, look what they have done to her. And there are a couple people in the hallway at that time, the hotel carpenter and one of the maids who has actually just checked, um, is, is check going by checking the room, seeing who's, who's checked out and, um, what rooms need to be cleaned. And so he, he screams to them. Um, look what they've done to her. The hotel carpenter uh, goes in and looks um, and then immediately goes to call first the assistant manager uh, who comes up, also goes in, looks at Helen. They haven't they haven't messed with her. They don't know that she's actually deceased at this point. They don't render any aid. They're all kind of panic. And then the assistant manager calls the manager, who is Pat Branch, who's down having breakfast in the dining room. And so he comes up, looks at the body and then goes, finds they have a house doctor, Dr. Buck. So he goes and finds Dr. Buck. Dr. Buck is not dressed yet. This whole time they're just kind of standing sentry outside the room, but not actually checking on her. Um, and so finally Dr. Buck gets dressed and comes up, um, and does a physical examination and, and pronounces her deceased. But then they decide that because she's deceased, they're going to call the coroner. So they call the coroner who um, is not in his office. He's out of town for the morning. And when he can't come, they just wait. Uh, they never, they don't call the sheriff's department uh, for over an hour. And finally they, they call uh, the sheriff's department and the police department and the police technically have jurisdiction. Um, and there's a, there's a whole kerfuffle about, um, the chief of police is, is on a fishing trip. So they end up calling the sheriff's department. Uh, right. So he and his assistant are up on a fishing trip. So they, uh, don't even hear about it. They think it's just a, you know, a random rumor till, till much later. And, and I think are pretty embarrassed about it because it becomes such a huge deal. Um, and then, uh, but then the sheriff's department does finally get called. And the first law enforcement officer on the scene is <clears throat> deputy sheriff Tom Brown, who is the, the sheriff Lawrence Brown's brother. And so was certainly appointed by, by Lawrence when he, when he came into office. Um, and so he's the first one there and, um, 
goes in go, and Pat Branch meets him in the lobby, takes him up to the room, and then they find this key in the door, um, which there's a whole slew of articles and speculation about this this key that's in the door. But he takes it, uh, Pat Branch takes it out, and uh, and they turn it over to law enforcement. Um, and there's there's much speculation about that key, but then they finally start uh, the investigation uh, into what happened to Helen and more, more deputies come in. Sheriff Lawrence Brown eventually arrives and they, they dust for fingerprints. They do, you know, pretty standard um, forensic stuff at the time. You know, of course there's no, there's no DNA there. There is blood typing. There's some hair forensics, but really it's, it's pretty limited in, in um, what they can do with physical evidence. And they, end up really not finding much of much of any physical evidence. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins, convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh You go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. I'm going to try to be nice here. It's going to be hard for me, but I was I was sort of watching these apish men like lumbering around in and around this hotel room, you know, this site of the murder, and I was just sort of grading them on their ability to keep forensic integrity intact, and it went from sort of like a okay, her uncle discovers the body, bumps against the door, we've already you know, sort of contaminated maybe the door handle and like the entryway. So that's gone from an A to an A minus. They start showing up, they start digging around in there, goes from an A minus to about a B to a B minus. More guys enter, they're all sort of like taking a look, poking the body, you know, sort of like you know, it just kind of degrades, degrades, degrades. And by the end, it's like, what, what really do we have to work with? And the answer is a little, a little. But if only you know, they had gone through the right channels first and gotten an investigator on the scene as soon as possible and didn't have all these snafus, maybe we would have had some evidence that hadn't gotten disturbed in some way. I don't know. I don't know. Well, and I will say there are there are a number of articles that appear in various newspapers kind of talking about how this case has been bungled, you know, from the beginning. Um, so it's certainly not, you know, we think about this, it is sort of an early period of forensic science and, uh, and even, you know, even now with, with all our advances in DNA technology, there's still, you know, false, <laughs> false positives and, um, a, a lot of, but a, a lot of skepticism around some of that. But at the same time, I mean, it's almost like, do you, you, it, the cynic in me is almost wondering if it's intentional, um, on someone's part, you know, there's certainly a, a conspiracy theorist might might fun, find some intentionality in um, in how things go about. They do find some bloody fingerprints um, on a on a light bulb, which is is probably the best physical evidence that they actually find. Um, they're all partials. They, as far as they say, they're not able to to match it. You know, to an actual fingerprint. But they do assume that someone, the, the murderer had unscrewed the light bulb because they didn't know how the switch worked um, and they wanted to darken the room. So that's probably the best piece of, of physical evidence that, that they collect is this, these partial finger, bloody fingerprints on, on a light bulb that was left in the room um, un, unscrewed from, 
from the, the lamp itself. So one thing that we did learn a little bit later, this actually, this whole case kind of goes soup to nuts just in a matter of weeks. It was really remarkable. Um, and there are reasons for that, which we'll, of course, uh, get into as far as racial justice goes. But um, this case progresses quite quickly. And one thing that they do find is that Helen, thankfully, was not sexually assaulted. At first, there was some speculation that she might have been. And of course, the, the journalists who are descending upon the scene, you know, the vultures, you know, kind of flapping their wings in as quickly as possible. You know, there's there's always that kind of rumor, but they say, nope, nope, this that was not the case. And uh, in fact, that changes the nature of the investigation to the point where they say, okay, well, what was taking place here? Was it a random act of violence? Was it a botched burglary? What? How, how do we characterize this if that was not part of the motive? Well, and it, I will say, you know, they, they then kind of shift to robbery, but nothing was actually taken from her room. And she had a a very minor amount of valuables. She had a watch that she had taken off and put not put on the chair. She was wearing a ring. Um, she had, you know, a few dollars in her pocketbook. Um, and certainly we know two other rooms were unlocked and open at the time um, from when the night watchman came around. Um, and likely, you know, people that may have had more valuables and uh, the lights would have been off and a little bit easier to sneak into and, rob someone of, of items uh, in those cases rather than, you know, a, a room with a, with a light on. So, you know, they do, they do um, speculate and, and it's, you know, in lots of headlines and even after the fact, even after um, the case is closed, um, they, they're still uh, talking about the rapist murder of, of Helen Clevenger and some of these, you know, detective magazines and really, when you when you know, in my interpretation, I think that th- that was likely the motive, but that um, that sexual assault was was the motive. Um, but the, that Helen screamed and and fought back, and she lost her life. But um, she that likely may have happened either way. So we have the cavalry does arrive, and most prominent among the cavalry is. Sheriff Lawrence Brown, who is, as you said, sort of this legendary figure in Western North Carolina history. Um, there's a passage in your book that I would love for you to read to us, which is the, and I think our listeners will kind of get a sense of who this guy was almost exclusively through this passage, right? I mean, you can just kind of they say clothes make the man, but in this case, the car makes the man. Would you just describe, uh, based on those sources that you found, the this vehicle um, that that Lawrence Brown drives? I, I hesitate only because he drives the Batmobile. It's basically the Batmobile, and it's kind of the right time. It's the kind of the right period, you know. That just will you will you describe? Sh- Sheriff Brown's Batmobile to us, please. And it, this is one of the best things I read all week. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll just read the passage. It actually appeared in the Charlotte News, right? At, around the time, I mean, that people were reporting on this. And I actually think I have to go back and, and check that it was written by a female reporter, which was, was pretty rare at the time. Um, but this is how it's, how it's described. A 1934 model Graham supercharger made at the Indianapolis plant, especially for the sheriff's War against bootleggers. Bulletproof glass, almost an inch and three quarters thick, protects the occupants. And through this glass are sheathed portholes, which can be opened only by the hard thrust of a gun from the inside. Radiator, hood, and cowl are bulletproof, lined with special steel, but the front bumper is the most impressive part of the big sedan. It consists of armored plate to protect the front tires from bullets and a heavy bumper for knocking cars off the road. If he can't make a fleeting car stop any other way, Mr. Brown runs up behind it and smacks it with that mighty prow. Inside are gun racks and pistol holders. The car is equipped with Tommy guns and automatics. No one has ever escaped pursuit. So, so when you think about that, especially in like today's context of, of of what's happening in, um, you know, the world of, of law enforcement and policing. It's kind of, it's just incredibly difficult to imagine, but Lawrence Brown campaigned on this 
um, promise of bringing in moonshiners and moonshining and bootlegging. You know, this was kind of, it was, uh, you know, prohibition, you know, was put into effect at the beginning of 1920 and Lawrence Brown was, um, elected soon after for his first term. And then he lost a term and this is his first term back in office. So he really wants to stay in office. He's chasing down moonshiners. And of course, there are many rumors and uh, oral history stories that the Browns had their had their own moonshine still and were producing their own alcohol, um, which was, uh, you know, while busting up everybody else's stills at the time. Um, so he's um, quite quite the officer, really also uh, gunning for re-election in November. It's July and he's, he needs to be re-elected um, in November after losing, you know, the previous uh, term. So he's, uh, he's feeling the heat. We had a guest on over the holidays who uh, wrote a book called Mississippi Moonshine Politics. And uh, Janice was very forthcoming about the long history of the uh, corrupt sheriff up and down uh, southern states during the era of prohibition. I mean, it was almost like a cartoon character. You you would run into so many of them. You know, they just caricatured themselves over and over again. Very quickly, the interest turns to the account of a potential suspect as a person of interest who was glimpsed on the night. And the investigation has to come up with some bodies, right? I mean, they have to come up with people that they can begin to hold or charge or detain in order to satisfy public interest. And we see this shift happen really within hours and days of Helen's murder. I mean, they are under pressure to find suspects. So how how does that take shape in that first kind of critical period for law enforcement? Yeah. So yeah, Sheriff Brown is under pressure. So is the police department. They're feeling very embarrassed that they are not the lead investigators on this case because they were on a fishing trip. And this fishing trip is reported in the paper um, with this confrontation between the reporter and the and the and the police chief, and uh, gets pretty heated. Uh, but so the police actually are the ones who make the first arrest, and they arrest. Um, Joe Urey, who's a young black man who works at the hotel, and their only evidence is that he had, like a year previously, been um, acu- accused of um, taking someone, a man, to a woman's room who then complained. Nothing really happened. Um, and he was proven innocent of even that much, but that is why he's you know, the first suspect that the police go to and they find like a rust stain on his shirt, um, which they think is blood and um, hold him for a very short amount of time and release him. And so I think they really wanted to make that arrest quickly um, just to say, you know, we're still here. And but then the sheriff's department starts taking witness statements. And because there was such a gap between um, when Helen was found and when the sheriff's department was called, a lot of the people, a lot of the witnesses have checked out of the hotel already. And so they've got to go track them down. Um, but they end up basing a lot of the investigation on these eyewitness reports. So they go around asking what people heard. And so that's when all these, they, they do remember, you know, they woke up, they heard screams, they heard like glass shattering, they heard all these different things, but it's not really leading them to anything. Um, they do, however, find several people who actually saw someone in the hotel that night making an escape from the hotel. So the first one is Erwin uh, Pittman, who is in the room directly, almost directly across the hall from Helen. And right around 1 a.m., which is when they eventually pinpoint the time of uh, the murder to have occurred, um, he hears a scream. He's, he's getting ready for bed. He's brushing his teeth. And he runs to the door to look out and see what's going on. But he realizes, he, he looks around really quickly, realizes there's no one there and that he's also in his underwear. He goes back in, put, pulls on a robe and comes back out. Um, and at that point, when he comes back out in his robe, he sees someone in Helen's doorway, um, kind of back in the doorway. And he 
thinking that that person is a guest, just like he is. He says, I wonder what that noise was. And the person replies, that's what I was wondering too. And Pittman thinking, you know, they're just another guest, uh, looks around the hall, doesn't hear anything else. He goes back in his room and goes to sleep. Well, a few minutes later, um, unbeknownst to Erwin Pittman, um, the uh, uh, employees who are down in the lobby see a man run down this back stair or the, the back staircase. So there's an elevator, but there's also a staircase that leads down and then run across the back part of the lobby and run into the manager's office. Um, so we've talked about the manager before, Pat Branch, runs into the manager's office, stoops behind the desk, um, and then one of them kind of goes to investigate. Um, they, they think maybe he's just um, someone who's running to close the windows for um, because of the rain. Uh, and then they realize once he ducks behind the desk that maybe not, maybe this is a, an intruder. And so uh, when they go to investigate, the man goes out the doors from the manager's office, which leads out onto the balcony and then jumps over the balcony. Um, and there's a taxi driver, Casey Jones, who's out on the porch, who's just dropped off um, some folks at the hotel, who also sees him jump over the balcony banister and to the street and then run um, around the corner of the hotel. All of these people, um, they can't give a good description of who this person is. It's dark, they say, but they think he's, you know, around 5'9", 180 pounds. So, I mean, like fairly specific. And they all are positive that he's a white man, but are, are pretty sure that he's a white man. And, and, and going back to Pittman, um, you know, if he had any inclination that there was a black man in this segregated hotel in 1936 inside a room at 1 a.m., um, I think that that would have, you know, really occurred to him that that was strange very quickly. Um, and, and that does not come up. So they're all, so the sheriff's department is really looking into, white men um, that may have met Helen or seen Helen um, while she was visiting, spoken to Helen. And they go down this, this road of, you know, while there were these few unchaperoned hours when um, her uncle was off doing something that maybe she, she spoke to someone or met someone um, or she had a, a secret boyfriend that may have come down. Um, so they, they're going on this kind of, um, this kind of angle. And so uh, they eventually get a statement from someone who's overheard this fairly well-known violinist, a German violinist. His name is Mark Walner. They overheard him saying the night previously, um, I've got, I've got to get a lot of alcohol. I've got a date with a girl at the battery park or, or something to that effect. And based on that, they go and they, they pick him up and they, they put him in jail. And, um, you know, one thing that the police department or the sheriff's department does is they, they hold people indefinitely without charges, um, which is a big point of contention among, uh, you know, folks, at least in a lot of the newspaper reports that they, they just arrest these people on suspicion, but don't charge them with anything and just hold them, um, indefinitely, um, and so that's that's the first arrest that they make. And of course, that's very sensational because he's he's fairly well known. He's only been in Asheville for a while, but he's also he's known as a ladies man. He's a very dapper dresser. Um, I'm, I'm always sad that these pictures are in black and white because I know he's wearing just these like crazy, vibrant colors. Um, and I, I think it would be really fun to, to, to see his his outfits. Um, because it looks a lot more subdued in black and white uh, from what they describe in the newspapers. But yeah, they hold him for, for quite a while. I mean, the whole time the police are just grasping at straws, right? I mean, they're just trying to come up with anybody they possibly can. And there are no really good, solid leads. It's all circumspect and kind of hearsay and so forth. But there is this one funny moment where Volner is in custody and... He manages to get a hold. Someone brings him his violin, and you write that for sort of half an hour one afternoon, you know, he plays the most magnificent solo suite on violin to the entire, you know, jail, and no one bats an eye. I mean, no one is impressed. He's sort of, you hear you have this, this, 
you know, exceptional music sort of flowing forth out of this, you know, instrument and and in this unlikely setting. And you would think that you know, music has the power to soothe the savage breast and the sort of, you know, these these hardened criminals that are in lockup might turn their heads. No, no, they don't care. They don't care. Well, and it's it's interesting too because, you know, it's like he, Sheriff Brown is giving these reporters this kind of like, in my mind, unprecedented access to folks in the jail. Like the fact that Wilner could get his um, violin into the jail is, is, he, is just insane. Um, but then... You know the reporters are are watching this and listening, and it and I almost wonder like how does this filter through you know the the time like who are these people who are jailed what are they jailed for like how, what is the the end game of the reporters of you know making this story uh, something that uh, that people want to read and hear about and I you know you'd always wonder like what what actually was going on there but yeah he gives this whole you know he's got his violin he gives this whole concert and. Um, unimpressed. Yeah, they say, yeah, yeah, whatever. I'd really like to get out of jail. <laughs> so, so there are two more persons of interest that emerge. Um, Volner is eventually released. They can't. They can't stick him with anything. You know, they, they've got nothing. And there are these two other persons of interest that emerge. Uh, one of whom is an employee at the hotel, another employee at the hotel. There are many who come and go over the course of, of the investigation. Um, Daniel Gaddy, who is the night watchman, he was uh, especially kind of interesting because of his access to keys, right, and to uh, the patrols that he would make on a regular basis. And then we actually have Uncle Billy, who becomes a person of interest briefly. What what was the dynamic with these two suspects? So with Daniel Gotti, he's arrested and he's held the longest. Um, he's just held because, and the sheriff in, ends up saying, like, I don't think that he did it, but I think he knows what's happened because they get this kind of break in the case. So the, the way that the night watchman is kind of uh, held accountable is that there's a watch clock at the end of each hallway that he's supposed to punch every hour on the hour on every floor. And for some reason, when they open that watch clock on Helen's hall, the only time in the last uh, week or so that has been recorded on that, on the, the paper disc that's in the watch clock um, that he has not punched. The only time he has not punched is 1 a.m. on the night of the murder. And they're just like, oh my gosh, you know, we've got to, what happened here? And so Gaddy has a, a, you know, a ton of excuses. You know, my wife was sick. I'm late on a car payment. Um, I, you know, my mind must've been somewhere else and that's why I didn't punch. I must've just forgotten. And, you know, the police are, the the sheriff's department is not accepting that. And so they, they just hold him. Um, they eventually find his master key on his key ring, but it's broken. And he said, well, I was thinking about renting this house and I thought maybe this key would, would open it up. And so he, um, breaks the key in the lock and then they go to that house and find the other half of his key. Um, and that it had been, been there for a while. So they're like, well, you know, he, what, there's just all these like very strange things. And he was also the one that had gone up after the phone call came down about the disturbance that night and gone and checked on all the doors and, and not heard anything. And so um, there's just some the, some strangest, strangest there that is um, concerning to, to law enforcement officers. And, and he ends up hanging out in jail for, for quite a long time. And then, um, uncle Billy. Yeah. Uncle Billy, uh, people are very suspicious uh, of William Clevenger. You know, it goes back to this whole, he's a, a 50 year old bachelor who's escorting his young niece around, uh, unchaperoned by anyone, anyone else. Um, they go and interview his colleagues at, at NC State who all say, you know, he's, he's kind of keeps himself. He, some describe him as eccentric and some just describe him, you know, as an, as an old bachelor. I, I, I suspect that if he was living in the, the 21st century, he may 
he may have been a homosexual male who, you know, but in 1936, he was a bachelor. Um, and, but they're all very skeptical of him traveling around with his niece. And that comes up over and over again. Um, and as she's, it's also the only person that she knows in Asheville, um, really. And so, you know, Norm, typically in murders, the, the people closest to you are, are the, the biggest suspects. And people just get in an uproar when he leaves Asheville to go up to Helen's funeral. She's actually being buried in, in Ohio, where her, her father's family is from. And he says, well, I'm, I'm going to go up to the funeral. And he promises the sheriff he's going to come right back. And then the sheriff does this crazy thing where he says, in 48 hours, I'm going to make an arrest. I'm going to make the arrest. And so everybody is kind of on pins and needles waiting for this arrest. And they also know that in 48 hours, Helen's funeral will be over and Uncle Billy's supposed to be in back in Asheville. So the rumor mill just starts going. They just, everyone assumes like this is who they're going to arrest. It's going to be Uncle Billy. We already suspect him. And he's arriving back in town right at the time the sheriff says he's going to make an arrest. Well, William leaves the funeral and starts heading back to Staten Island with his brother and the sheriff ends up having to track him down and make him come back. So he turns around, he comes back, he goes in for questioning with the, with the sheriff's office, the 48 hours comes and goes and the sheriff finally comes out with an update and says, I'm sorry, I've not made an arrest, but William's going to just stay here voluntarily in jail to, to help us out with some points of the case. So, so he's in jail um, voluntarily for a little while, a few days, and then he decides he's had enough of jail and, um, and, and walks out on his own, which was news to the sheriff, and he was very unhappy with that. But um, he, William did stay in Asheville for, for a little while longer, but not in the jail. I do recall a scene in which you describe Sheriff Brown um, breaking down one of his own doors in anger and frustration at the fact that he had not been kept in the loop as to what was going on. Yeah, I think he was embarrassed um, because a reporter came to his door in Black Mountain where he lived and said, um, do, you, do you know where William Clevenger is? And he said, yeah, he's in the jail. He said, are you sure? And uh, the sheriff at that point <laughs> jumped in his his car and according to reporters, um, drove it right straight up to the to the sheriff's office so quickly he ended up ramming right into the door and uh and and busting it into splinters i think is what they say so how how accurate that really is i don't know but uh he was not happy when you drive the batmobile anything can happen really um (laughs) there are there are one or two other sort of minor suspects two other bellhops that are also brought in but they both have pretty good alibis and really at this point and their alibis check out um, for, for the night of the murder. But really, at this point in the case, there is not a lot to go on, is there? Sheriff Brown, he's having a hard time. Yeah, the fact that he hasn't been able to make an arrest is is big. And he knows that he's up for a re-election. He, the public is just kind of merciless. Reporters have flown in from all over the country. It's making international news and he is getting a really bad rap. Uh, a lot of them are reporting on this saying, you know, the, this podunk, you know, sheriff's department in Western North Carolina can't solve a case. Um, and he's, he's really feeling it. Um, and he is not happy about it. He's really feeling the pressure. And so he starts really kind of, he's still grasping at straws, but he starts really writing letters, um, to investigate different folks. And he writes a letter to the chief of police in New York, um, asking them to see if they can go up to, to Helen's parents' house and see if she owned a gun, um, ask about her character, things like that. And the, the chief of police in New York writes back and says, yeah, we'll do that. And, um, we'll do you one better. Basically we'll send some, some New York detectives down as well. And so um, pretty, pretty soon after he writes that letter, it's the end of July at that point, um, these two New York detectives show up in Asheville um, to, to aid in the investigation. And little do they know, we'll pick this up next week, but little do they know that they're actually about to have a break in the case. 
Yeah, a big, a big break in the case, if you can call it that. We will pick this up next week. And thank you so much for joining us and sharing the first half of the story of Helen Clevenger and her Batmobile driving justice seeker with us. Our guest today has been Ann Chesky-Smith, author of Murder at Asheville's Battery Park Hotel, The Search for Helen Clevenger's Killer, published by the History Press. Thanks for listening. Join us next week as we hear the conclusion to Helen's tragic story. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with Arcadia Publishing and the History Press and is a member of the Killer Podcasts Network. Special thanks, as always, to our producer, Bill Huffman, our production director, Bridget Coyne, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, and our executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. To learn more about Evergreen and our dozens of other shows, visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you, would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download American Vigilante now.